Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This is the last in our series of reflections from our panellists about things that they've been reading, we think you might be interested in, some of their reflections on an amazing year in politics, some summer thoughts to take away to the beach. I'm uh, Christopher Brook. I lecture in political theory and especially the history of political thought here in the Department of Politics and International Studies at Cambridge. My name's uh, Helen Thompson. I'm talk on talking politics most weeks. I'm Glenn Rangwala. I'm a lecturer in the politics of the Middle East. When I'm not teaching, I do various other things. I'm uh, a season ticket holder at West Ham um, for my sins. I'm also a massive Dickens fan, if you can talk about 19th century novels in terms of having fans, but uh, I'm obsessed with Dickens. I work in mostly the Gulf region, um, and I tend to spend quite a bit of my summers and my Easters and my Christmases also hanging around in the cities and towns off the Gulf, as well as uh, much of the rest of the Middle East when I get the opportunity. The exciting thing for me at the start of the summer, the publication of the edition of Thomas Hobbes' 1651 classic Leviathan that I've been doing for Penguin Classics. That's taken up quite a bit of my time over the last two years, sorting out aspects of the new text and writing a new introduction and explanatory notes. Um, I'm hoping it will be a popular student edition. I've read a lot of different things this, this year. A lot of that comes from the fact that I generally read novels rather than books of about politics when I'm not actually working. And they're not all Dickens novels either. But I have read one book this year that I think is worth people having a look at maybe, and that is um, Steve Keen's book, Can We Avoid a, Another Financial Crisis? It's very short. It explains something about why the financial crisis happened in 2008 and what the ongoing economic risks are. I don't agree with all of it. I think he's rather overly sanguine about the present monetary landscape, but it's a fairly devastating account of why the economics profession and professional economics outside the academy was so blind to the the forces that led to 2008. As someone who works in places which are very intellectually and culturally rich, but places which are also quite difficult to do proper research in, I tend to get a lot out of reading the literary fiction of the region. The Middle East, both from Turkey and Iran, from the Arab states and from Israel, all have rich literary cultures, cultures in which there is a long history of writing about the politics and society in a critical and intellectually driven way. So often one gets a better sense of the the public passions and frustrations the places and journeys of the Middle East through reading the fiction of the authors of the region rather than just going straight into the academic writing about it. There's been, from some countries of the Middle East, such as Iraq and Syria, a new wave of literature written by authors from or originating from those countries. My favourite author, the author I generally recommend as my first port of call, is an Iraqi, Hassan Blasim, who's book of short stories, The Iraqi Christ, is often a very good way to introduce people to thinking about what literature has to say to the politics of war in Iraq. 
how literature can engage with themes of the absurdity and banality of violence, the nature of public confrontations, the nature of frustrations that people experience in their daily lives, as well as people's suspicions and mistrusts of each other and of government within a context in which people's um, lives have been radically changed by the experience of conflict. So as an author, he's an excellent read. So what will I be reading over the summer? Well, I've got my eye on a few things. Uh, One of them is a book by Emily Jones. She's a a research fellow here in, in Cambridge. And it's a book called Edmund Burke and the Invention of Modern Conservatism. Um, Well, what's it about? Well, lots of people will tell you that Edmund Burke is somehow the founding father of modern conservatism, if conservatives ever acknowledge their philosophical ancestors. And that's a very puzzling claim, the more you look at it. In the 18th century, politics was a contest between the Tories and the Whigs, and we usually associate the conservatives with the Tories. But Edmund Burke was a Whig. And what Emily Jones does in her book is she asks the historical question, well, how did Burke become a conservative? How did he become the kind of person that conservatives would acknowledge as a very important figure in their own intellectual genealogy? And the story she tells has the Irish crisis of the 1880s at its heart, the difficulties that the Gladstone liberal government had over the question of home rule for Ireland. And in the middle of the 1880s, there was the great split in the Liberal Party as Joseph Chamberlain led the so-called Liberal Unionists out of the Liberal Party and into opposition to Gladstone. And the story ends with effectively the merger of the Liberal Unionists, their absorption into the Conservative Party. And Jones's argument is that when the Liberal Unionists left the Liberal Party, they took Edmund Burke with them that the Liberal Unionists had latched on to Burke as an Irishman in a debate about Ireland and as a Conservative on certain kinds of constitutional matters when the great row in British politics was about the Constitution and reforming and modernising the Constitution. And Jones's thought is that Burke is conjured up as a kind of patron saint for the Liberal Unionists And as the Liberal Unionists merge into the Conservative Party, into Lord Salisbury's Conservative Party in the 1890s and afterwards, Burke gets naturalised as a Conservative. And ever since the turn of the 20th century, Conservatives have confidently reckoned him to be one of theirs. But as Jones shows, the story is much more complicated and interesting than that. One series of novels that I've been reading for relaxation, on and off for about a year or so, perhaps longer, is Bernard Cornwall's series of novels. The first one is called The Last Kingdom, which the BBC have made a television show out of. And basically it is about the the creation of England as a kingdom during the Anglo-Saxon period. It's a mixture of of actual history and a made-up protagonist who is Anglo, or I should say Saxon by birth, Viking by upbringing because he was taken away as a child to become a slave and has divided loyalties he has a a heathen pagan heart so he never gives up on the Norse gods but he ends up fighting first at Alfred's side and then at Ethelfled's side trying to create the kingdom of England and I kind of like these books that mix 
history with some imagination. So so my second, my other one that I'm very much looking forward to, the translation is coming out um, later this summer. And so it's been a book that I've been waiting to read for the last two years since it was originally published in Hebrew, is Orly Castelblum's An Egyptian Novel. Castelblum is an Israeli writer who's produced a number of really quite stunning books. She's my favourite writer in Hebrew, but her 2002 book, Human Parts, was one of the best books I've read in recent years. Israeli literature often has a reputation, because of the sort of grand old men of Israeli literature, people like Amos Oz and David Grossman, has the reputation for being somewhat sort of serious and ponderous. Orly Castelblum writes in a much more satirical, often slightly cruel style about Israeli society. And the the latest book, which was written and published in Hebrew a few years ago, an Egyptian novel, I was drawn to it when I saw in the description that it's based around a Jewish family in Egypt in biblical times who refused to leave when Moses tried to leave the Israelites out of the country. And it's a sort of fictionalised history of that family from biblical times to the modern day. And what draws me to it as well is this sense, which I'm always trying to convey to people about, the multifaceted nature of people's identities in the Middle East. They're not just Arabs or Jews. They're not just Sunni or Shia, Muslims or Christians. They have these multiple identities in a way that Castelblum has brought out in earlier novels, but this one sounds like by conveying both the Egyptianness and Jewishness, the Marxist while also nationalist conception of the family that she comes on to describe in the book brings out those multiple different ways in which people in the Middle East think about themselves and their own pasts and identities. A couple of blogs that I've paid quite a bit of attention to in the last few months in particular, the first of them is Adam Tooze, who is an economic historian who's written a lot about the economic history of the first part of the 20th century but is very much now engaged with now and trying to make sense of the economic and political world that we're living in through a long historical perspective. And he's very qualified to do that, given his particular historical expertise. And he has a blog, just adamtoos.com, I think, that he updates pretty regularly. He published a a great review of um, Yanis Varoufakis's book, Adults in the Room, really got to the, the central issue, I think, of what Varoufakis was saying and the threat, the one threat that Varoufakis thought that the Greek government could make to try to change what happened to Greece, to try to change Greece's fate and the failure of that, ultimate failure of that threat. He's, he's very insightful and uh, he's very knowledgeable. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. As well as reading new books, I'm also planning to spend part of the summer looking back at some older writing about British politics. It's a familiar theme of this podcast that we're in a very confusing time where a lot of our guesses, a lot of our predictions, a lot of our judgments about what's going on are turning out to be uh, quite radically false, wrong, misleading. And that can make it quite a good time instead of looking at punditry or instead of reading bang up to the minute analyses to look back at some older scholarship on British politics that seems to have stood the test of time. One book that I've been starting to read recently is James Bulpit's 1983 book, Territory and Power in the United Kingdom. Um, Bulpit actually once upon a time was one of Helen Thompson on this podcast, one of Helen's teachers at the University of Warwick. 
Bull Pitt had a very distinctive way of thinking about politics. Uh, he used the word statecraft a lot. He was interested in the relations between local and central government. He was always interested at a, at a time when lots of people took the union between England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland somewhat for granted. He always treated it as a problem and thought about the different ways in which power was exercised in the different parts of the United Kingdom. And at a time where we simultaneously have the crisis concerning the question of Scottish independence and the crisis about Britain's relations with Europe, which will lead to a new ways of governing the country, new ways of managing the economy. The ways in which Bull Pitt talked about British politics do seem to have a renewed lease of life, and I'll be looking forward to spending some time with him. One thing that I'm interested in thinking about over the summer is the relationship of where we are now in political and economic times to these longer historical cycles, the kind of questions that I said that Adam Tooze was interested in. I'm particularly interested in reading a book by two people called Peter Turchin and Sergei Nevedov called Secular Cycles that looks at previous long economic cycles going back to the medieval world and to the Roman and post-Roman world and the ways in which different structural economic and political factors interact with each other to cause crises and to think about whether there are patterns in those cycles that we can see working out now. Now these kind of comparisons are always you know extremely fraught in many ways because there's always an argument that says okay this time it's different this time we're living in unique times but I'm not generally convinced by the this time it's different argument and I think that looking back at previous economic times and seeing the things that brought the structures that allowed for peace relative peace at times and relative prosperity and these things really much are relative why that they came to an end can be instructive for understanding the times in which we are living now the one academic book that i'm looking forward to reading over over the summer vacation is a book that's actually largely been written by by those not in the field of politics but in the field of geography or architecture which is miran kamrava's edited collection gateways to the world this is about the port cities of the Gulf region, places like Abu Dhabi and Doha and Bandar Abbas in Iran, which are often talked about as cases of rapid modernization, of cases in which you know, tribal populations settled in a particular place and have quickly transformed their lives um, through the development of the new infrastructures of the city in cases of newfound oil or gas wealth. Kamrava's book is approaching them from a different perspective. He's approaching these as places which have always been globalised cities, places which were in some ways created either in league with or by colonial powers as port cities which connected up the worlds of Europe with the worlds of South Asia. So these are places which were built as entrepots for trade, for exchange, for populations to move between one continent and another. And so what Kamrava's doing in this book is showing how that sense of a globalised city has been maintained over the course of the period since the creation of these places. And given their importance to the world in terms of security, in terms of the global economy, in terms of the confrontations that we see now breaking out in the Gulf region between different um, countries as they now are, I think to understand these places as globalised cities, which have their own limitations and potentials, is something that I think gives us a new way of thinking about the politics of the Gulf region. 
Another book that I'm pretty keen to to read this summer is a novel, and that is Dostoevsky's um, The Demons. I've read a couple of Dostoevsky novels, but not this one before, and I'm interested in this, partly because I think that we are living in a world in which Russia matters, and Russia as a civilization that is really quite different than Western civilization matters, and I feel like I don't understand that very well at all. In fact, pretty much don't understand it. So earlier in the year, I, I reread War and Peace for the same reason, and Dostoevsky is a rather different kind of Russian than Tolstoy. I'm also particularly interested in reading The Demons because it's a book about Dostoevsky's understanding of a turn towards radical politics in Russia, a particular moment in time in the last third of the 19th century. And I think that Dostoevsky had a sense, and partly had this sense because he was kind of increasingly consumed by this notion himself at that that point, that there was a kind of apocalyptic, kind of end of times feel to politics as it was playing out in Russia at that time. And he took that sense down to what was happening in one particular town, as I understand what the novel is about, and describes in some sense how a town came under the psychological possession of that politics and the individual's who led that. Now, I am actually extremely sceptical about thinking about politics, either in terms of grand narratives of progress, the triumph of time, so to speak, or what I see as its opposite of of the apocalypse is coming. But I think that both of those narratives are kind of at play in the way in which people talk about the political world in which we live and although Dostoevsky himself seems somewhat caught up in the second of those in the apocalyptic version he was an extraordinarily insightful man and uh, I'm interested in having a look at what he thought the political consequences of an atmosphere premised on these extremely charged notions of time are Uh, Another book I'm looking forward to reading is by Axel Kerner. He teaches history at University College London at UCL, and he's just written a book called America in Italy. And it's a study, it focuses on the 19th century, and it's a study of how Italians thought about what was going on in America. And it's a terribly rich kind of topic to be studying when people pay attention to the American Revolution. They're often interested in how European political ideas get adapted and redeployed in the uh, radical American context. But we shouldn't ever lose sight of the way in which through the 19th century, the United States of America, also the new republics of Latin America, could prove to be a kind of inspiration for Republicans, for Democrats, for liberals struggling for political reforms in Europe. For too long, we've tended to focus on the European reception of democratic America through the lens of just one text, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. But Kerner has really opened up the subject with respect to 19th century Italy, another country where there are various reformist, revolutionary, radical, republican, liberal movements for reform. And looking at the different ways in which America was understood, was argued about, was a force of attraction, was a force of repulsion for various people in Italy. It's a fascinating story that pulls in people like Giuseppe Mazzini and Giuseppe Garibaldi, some of the founding fathers of the Italian state from 1860 onwards. But because this is 19th century Italy, it's also a story about opera and ballet. And I'm I'm particularly interested in, in opera. Giuseppe Verdi's opera Un Ballo in Mascaro was set, rather oddly, 
in 17th century Boston, and Kerner has stories to tell about that that reshape some of the familiar stories about that opera. Perhaps even more curiously, Giuseppe Rota, everyone in this story seems to be called Giuseppe, Giuseppe Rota put on a popular ballet called Bianchi e Neri, Blacks and Whites, which was an adaptation of Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now that seems a very strange thing to be doing, uh, and Kerner tells the story of why it was that a ballet about race relations, about slavery in the United States, could be so popular in Italy on the threshold of its own national unification. Do follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore to find out more about what we've been reading and links to the articles and books we've discussed. And next week, we'll be updating you on our future plans for this podcast. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Talking Politics.